Hello, everyone. This is Fire Chief Paul Dow with Albuquerque Fire Rescue. Now, this podcast is designed to bring you helpful training and best practices and some additional resources that you can access from anywhere. So thank you for joining us and enjoy today's episode. Albuquerque Fire Department, what's the address to your emergency? I have somebody who is having an asthma attack, respiratory distress, and is uh, collapsed. How old is he? 17 years old. Is he awake right now? Uh, William? William? You awake? You with me? He's unresponsive. He's hunched over, still breathing. He's still breathing? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, there Is he go. changing yeah. color at all? Where is head. Sorry? Is he changing color at all? Uh, we're going to take a look. How's his color? You can lay down, buddy, okay? Okay. He's unconscious. Okay, well, why don't you just monitor, his, monitor his breathing? Monitor his breathing. I'm going to get some. Get his glasses we're, we're coming, like the sirens, right now, okay? If anything changes. Okay, we're well, in the driveway. Okay, perfect. Address. We'll be right there. All right, I'll keep you on speaker. Okay, hold. I'll be right back, okay? Farm okay. Danger Theory Rescue Theory is pleased to be in the driveway. Crossy's Constitution and Hannah, 17 mail asthma attack. He's not alert. Six Delta 1. Princeton Drive Northeast, 6 Delta 1, Rescue 3 into 3. Hey everybody, welcome to another AFR podcast. I got Dr. Pruitt again and we're right in the middle of our respiratory series. So again, we're doing a series on um, all the different respiratory emergencies you could come across. We're going to, today we're going to be at the station, we're going to sitting around uh, doing dishes and you get dispatched out for a 6 Delta, you got a 20 year old female and the roommate just walked in and said she's having trouble breathing but she's not really sure what's going on with the patient um that's all you know at the time so you get in route and as you're going to this call alarm room calls you back and says that this patient has now gone unconscious so that's all you know you got a 20 year old female um trouble breathing initially and now she's unconscious are you have any initial thoughts on what to suspect maybe when you get on scene is this narrow it or is it still a pretty gigantic this is a pretty gigantic um possible um etiology of what's going on with her i would come back to my five causes of difficulty breathing which would be head heart lungs blood or musculoskeletal probably in a younger patient that's not breathing normally obviously just given the environment that we live in these days i'm going to think about possible overdose um could be hyperventilation she's also one of the most life-threatening things i would think of would be a pulmonary embolism okay or possibly asthma attack or maybe um allergic reaction all right so we've all seen the heroin overdose we're gonna have slower respirations we're gonna have the pinpoint pupils we're gonna have maybe some uh sonorous respirations as well with the tongue blocking the airway mm-hmm. um so as you're getting to the scene you're you know if you're suspicious of that if you see those signs and symptoms then that's going to lead you down that route now if you see something else maybe the person's uh breathing faster it might change uh what you think Absolutely. Um, I would still consider it in a young person who is having difficulty breathing and isn't completely conscious, but it's very important not to narrow in on just an opiate overdose because it's so common. It's easy to go right to that, but we need to keep a broad differential with her. Okay. So as you walk in, you see the patient, she's on the ground. She is unconscious. You're trying to 
gather any kind of history from the roommate and she's like i don't know what happened i just i walked in and she was you know she couldn't even talk to me she was just struggling to breathe um you're like does she have any kind of history and she's like oh, i don't know but i know she's got a, an epi pen but i'm not sure what's wrong with her um and then as you're walking around the apartment trying to get some clues you see that she's you know she's got an inhaler in her room um but now you got to get to the patient so this patient is unconscious you check her pupils there are four and pearl and as you're listening to lung sounds uh, you notice some audible strider and you can hear some wheezing going on in the lungs and she's breathing a little bit uh, maybe 28 times a minute okay um so now i would think uh, overdose would be lower on my differential for her anytime i'm kind of confused and not sure what's going on i always come back to the basics and just abcs so my first move would be to address her airway you said it sounds like she might have some obstruction going on uh, with the strider and the drooling and the increased respiratory rate so i try to position her do a little jaw thrust, see if, if we need to bag her and give some supplemental O2 if that makes a difference in her presentation. Um, and then see how she's breathing. You said you heard wheezing. Yeah, you hear wheezing and uh, you're able to get a sat on there. She's, you know, she's sat in like 75 right now. Um, okay. And yeah, so you're, you're able to start bagging. Okay, so I'm obviously I'm back to the basics. I'm doing ABCs. I'm just trying to fix the problems as they as they show up. Um, she's hypoxic, and uh, we've adjusted her airway. We're giving her supplemental O2. We're bagging her. Is anything helping? You know, it doesn't seem like it. Um, as you're bagging, you're not seeing good chest rise and fall okay so okay the other clues that you gave me with this girl would be the the fact that she saw an EpiPen. um i would maybe ask about um possible allergies could this be anaphylaxis did she get into something that maybe she's allergic to mm. and considering that and hearing the wheezing i'd still try to gather more history and information at this point as we're still addressing the airway Okay. Yeah. And the roommate, she just walked in and she has no idea. She hasn't talked to her roommate all day. She just walked in. She's struggling to breathe and then she ends up going unconscious and now she's on the floor. And okay. that is all the history that you get. Okay. Um, and uh, gosh, and nothing is improving with our... Yeah, your interventions are you know not really helping the the bvm is you know say you're able to um get an mpa in there for the you know what you thought might have been causing the strider um and then you start bagging and it's just you're not seeing good chest rise and fall your lung sounds you still hear wheezing okay um and then do maybe i would anticipate what's her blood pressure is she hypotensive Probably. Um, yeah, you are able to take a pressure and she is hypotensive. Um, you also expose and now you see some hives. Okay. Um, so at this point I'm worried about anaphylactic shock. So I would, with strider wheezing, um, hypotension, um, I would go ahead and give her epinephrine. Okay. And, uh, so the dose is going to be 0.3 IM of the epi, um, Okay, so in this situation, we had a few more signs. So we saw the hives um, 
and decided to go ahead and give the epi what if there's a person out there not as comfortable with it maybe afraid to give the epi or it took them you know too long to draw it up and now this patient starts to brady down and actually goes into cardiac arrest um what do you, what do we do on that patient okay this is a this is a tough scenario yeah, the worst possible <laughs> patient yeah um i had a boss one time that told me you can either in anaphylaxis you can either give epi early and give the small dose in the muscle or you can give epi later and give the massive dose through the iv and this is kind of that situation where if we didn't get it the small dose on board early enough we're still thinking this is the same problem but we're a little bit behind the eight ball with her starting to arrest now and this is clearly a respiratory arrest so we need to secure her airway okay. and fix the underlying cause of why she's arrested all right so you know we go um we're trying to get the airway under control we got an mpa in so far and we're bagging and we're just not getting um very good um, ventilation going on. We've got wheezing. We still have the strider and you don't hear a lot of air movement going on. So you're on. making this even tougher. <laughs> <laughs> this is like now the worst. What? <laughs> okay. So what you're telling me is we have a patient who's in respiratory arrest and I can't oxygenate and I can't ventilate. Is that what I'm right, understanding? Yes. Okay. Ventilation is ineffective. In my mind, you're telling by those criteria in a patient that I can't oxygenate and can't ventilate, this is a patient that would need a crike. Okay. Assuming um, I can't get an airway, I would probably take a look first okay. to see. But given so the So take strider, a look. Maybe, maybe it's possible to still intubate. Uh, an LMA is not going to do any good. You know, if the bagging is not doing any good, the LMA is not going to do any good. So you'd say you might take a look, see if you're able to uh, pass a bougie possibly, you know, with that closing airway. Possibly, yeah. If you've got uh, upper airway obstruction due to edema, it's going to be really difficult to identify landmarks. And even if you can try to get a bougie through, that's great. You're going to probably need a smaller size ET tube. But this is a patient who's already arrested and I wouldn't waste a lot of time trying to figure out what I'm looking at in her upper airway if I'm still not able to oxygenate or ventilate. This is absolutely the patient that's, to save her life, she's going to okay. need a crike. Yeah, so that's why the crike is in our protocol is for this girl right here pretty much. Exactly, right? yeah. So everybody out there, you know, paramedics, if you're able to do a crike, you've got to have it, you know, planned out in your mind prior to. Um, I've only actually criked one patient, so... Um, if, I don't know, probably five years ago, I went to a paramedic refresher through the military and we get to, you know, I was in pararescue. We had a lot of money. We got to go to a lot of cool courses. So I went to Wake Forest and we had like eight cadavers that we got to practice on. So we're just practicing crike after crike after crike. And when I came back at station 16, there's a 19 year old that crashed his car, ejected like 30 feet and he had all kinds of facial trauma going on. So we were just a load and go situation. He, it was really just right at the doorstep. So we load and go and in route to the hospital, my Lieutenant is, uh, you know, she wants to try to intubate first, like you recommended, but there's just a real bloody airway. Uh, suction wasn't helping out. And I was like super eager. I was like, I just went, I cracked like all these cadavers. So I was super eager on the crack. I had all my equipment laid out. Um, and my plan at the time was I'm going to, you know, identify my landmark. I'm going to use my scalpel. I'm going to make my vertical cut. Then I'm through the skin. Then I'm going to make my horizontal cut through the crack with membrane. Then I'm going to put P3 
pediatric Miguel's in to um, keep my opening, remove my scalpel, pass my tube, and that was my plan. Now, I got all my equipment ready, but the pediatric Miguel's had bounced as we're going down the road, so I didn't have the <laughs> pediatric Miguel's available. So I had to get the adult Miguel's, put it in, put the tube in. So it was a good crike, but it turns out that the adult Miguel's, they have those big grabbers on the end of it and they wouldn't come out after I got my tube in there. So uh, we brought this patient into the ER and he had adult Miguel's hanging out of his neck. And I don't know, it was kind of a you know a funny situation and a tragic call, but yeah. Um, Anyways, those are the things that can go wrong on a crike. So have it all planned out. Um, now, you know, I'm just going to plan on using a bougie. Uh, what do you What do you recommend? What, what's your plan on criking somebody? I love the fact that you went into that scenario with a plan of exactly how you're going to do it and you're able to execute it and work around it. I think that's one of the most important things with these like high acuity, low frequency events is to have run through them in your mind before they happen and be ready to do it. Um, my plan is much like yours. All you need is the three things, a scalpel, a bougie, and a tube. Um, do your north-south cut, your east-west, punch through that membrane, keep your finger in there, get your bougie in, and then put the tube over. Okay. Um, yeah, and this is, you know, every every procedure that you could possibly do. It kind of helps you as you're uh, going through and checking your your bags, you know, for the drivers out there. But, you know, walk it through every every possible thing as you go to each compartment now you're on the airway bag okay what kind of situations could i be in am i good for innovation am i good for nasal innovation am i good for uh crike so you make sure that's a that's an easy way to make sure that you got all the equipment you need is to like do all those mental rehearsals prior to getting them yeah and deciding which patient you're going to do it in too because a lot of these i feel like we're afraid to do crikes because it is a surgical procedure but um, knowing it's the patient that you can't oxygenate and you can't ventilate. And once you can check those two boxes in your mind and you've confirmed that that's the patient that you're looking at, don't wait till they die. If this yeah. is a patient, if they're still alive, like you don't, it's better for them if you can secure that airway soon. Um, it doesn't have to be after you've, you've messed with the upper airway for too long. All right, now let's back up. So I gave you the very worst situation ever, but what was happening in, in this 20-year-old patient and you know, how did it get this bad to the point that she goes into an arrest, respiratory yeah. arrest? Assuming this is anaphylaxis, like this is a very difficult call because we really had to troubleshoot her physiology in addition to trying to figure out what was the underlying thing to treat. Um, it sounds like um, with her allergy, what happened is um, the physiology of anaphylaxis is that uh, allergen is introduced into the lungs, and for whatever reason, the immune system is super hyperactive to this particular, we call it an antigen, which is basically an invader into the body. And the way that the body reacts is just this massive assault and one of the things that happens is um, constriction in the airways, mucus production, which can lead to hypoxia. In her case, it also led to a profound amount of vasodilation, which leads to the hypotension and the shock part of it. Um, it can manifest as skin, but it doesn't always manifest with hives. In fact, I think like 20% of anaphylactic reactions don't have skin involvement. One of the systems that we don't 
necessarily automatically think about with anaphylaxis being involved is the GI system. So a lot of times people, when their body's reacting to something, will either get nausea or vomiting or have um, diarrhea. Because if you think about it, our gut is one of our major um, methods of our body fighting invaders with the acid in the stomach. And there's a lot of our immune system is involved in the GI tract. And so in my mind, anytime there's two systems involved, whether it's cardiovascular with hypotension or it's the skin, which is easy, or GI or respiratory or airway with the edema, um, once I can, and another important one to think about is neurological status too. So if people get confused or unresponsive, anytime I can identify that I've got two body systems involved, I'm going to define that as anaphylaxis. And in my mind, then I'm the minute I can do that, I'm going to give epinephrine. Okay. I've also been on uh, less severe calls. So I remember one specifically, uh, you know, the patient and her friend were, were driving in a car and, um, you know, the, the patient somehow ended up eating, you know, like a peanut or something like that. I can't remember the exact specifics, but we showed up and the patient was freaking out, um, you know, she was like, I'm allergic to peanuts. And I, I ate something I didn't know had peanuts in it. And like, she's kind of, you know, it seems like super severe at first, like everybody's panicky. The friend tried to administer the patient her EpiPen, but she shot herself in the thumb. Oh, geez. <laughs> yeah. And um, so it seemed pretty chaotic. But then once we slowed down and started assessing the patient, like she was sat in 99%. Um, what sounded like strider like she was kind of just doing it like she was like panicking on her own so she was like <laughs> and you could tell that i don't know it just it, it it didn't seem right you know so we were like hey stop making that noise with your throat and uh and she ended up just breathing normally uh again sat 99 percent this person, you know, I was under the impression at the time, I was like, well, she's got an EpiPen. She's allergic to peanuts. Let's just give her Epi. But I was with another medic uh, that was like, well, she still sat in fine. She turned out to slow her breathing down and she was, ended up breathing fine. So I think what we ultimately did was not administer Epi. So, you know, that's what I would like to get out of this is when do you pull that trigger? Yeah, um, it sounds like it worked out just right in that situation. Um, in these younger patients that um, do have airway complaints, I have a lower threshold to actually pull the trigger on epi. So my trigger is, like I talked about, the two-system involvement. So if she's telling me that her airway is involved and like we know that she's had an allergy exposure and I, if I can figure out that there's another system, whether that's wheezing or skin or whatever, then I'll go ahead and give it. Um, with her, it sounded like she just needed some calming things, which you can do to buy yourself some time and kind of tease out what actually is going on is give her the other treatments that we have. So mm -hmm. maybe start with some Benadryl, start an IV, give some fluids, think about steroids. Um, and if if the fact that you're treating her, she should if she's kind of making that noise on her own, she should start to stop it because she feels like her needs are being addressed. Mm -hmm. But if she's still having that complaint, I would go ahead. I'd take any airway complaint pretty seriously yeah and so maybe we you know at least for me i i take that i i might need to be a little bit more aggressive with the epi um in the future it seems like i'm uh i don't know a little 
reluctant to give it. It's not something that we do very often. We don't do it very often, but I think once you can, and in your documentation too, if you can confirm that there are two systems involved, nobody's going to fault you for giving the epi. Okay. But we talked about um, on the other podcast with COPD and when to give epi. This is a little bit of a different pathological process and um, usually a different patient population. These are usually younger patients that can tolerate the epi a little bit better, won't have as many cardiovascular side effects, and will have a direct effect on what's going on with the allergy okay. that's causing the problem. So we're going to give uh, 0.3 milligrams epi IM, and what if they need another dose? If they need another dose, um, that's fine. Um, it's better to give, like we talked about, the small dose before you have to give the big dose after they arrest. So um, I'd give them about five minutes after the first dose to see if anything gets any better. In the meantime, be giving them the other adjuncts to treatment, starting your fluids, um, giving the Benadryl, and then don't be afraid to give that other dose if you need it. And about the time I'm drawing up the second dose, in my mind I'm wondering if I need to just start a drip or do the mini boluses. Okay. And as we all know, there's a, it's a lot easier said than done, right? I just said, oh, we're just going to give uh, 0.3 milligrams epi. So done, problem solved. But when reality is like, there's a lot more to it. So you've got the epi in this little uh, glass ampule. I remember um, one time I was in Afghanistan going on like a scorpion sting and I was trying to draw up epi and it was the first time I ever did it. And we used to wear these uh, flight gloves in case they were like a fire or something. We had to wear the flight gloves and trying to break open the ampule. And I just ended up crushing the entire <laughs> glass thing and uh, <laughs> I had to try that one over. So Oh man. Yeah. Yeah. We say these things like they're easy to do, but we forget there's lots of steps involved. Right. And then with yeah. epi also, you got to have that, uh, put that filter straw on there. Cause there could be like little glass, glass. shards that you, um, mm -hmm. suck up as you're, um, as you're drawing it, drawing it up. Yeah. Yeah. My goodness, man. Okay. So that's a 20 year old female that we have been talking about. Let's move to pediatric, maybe a 10 year old, do they present any differently? Um, actually we're seeing a lot more allergic reactions in kids. I think part of it could be attributed to the fact that our food is changing. There's a lot of new additives or chemically modified things that aren't, our bodies aren't necessarily used to. Um, kids can manifest a little bit different than adults in the fact that they might have more GI predominant symptoms. So it's important to think about when you've got a kid with nausea, vomiting, that's having a little bit of increased work of breathing, the, especially the younger ones, like two or three that can't really communicate with you as well. I would always, I always try to have that on my radar is could this be allergic reaction? Because unless you're thinking about it, you're going to miss it. Yeah. Okay. And then, so the pediatric dose is going to be what? Point zero one. Uh, point zero one five is what's in the um yeah point zero one milligrams per kilogram, which in the EpiPen Junior is just the dose I remember. It's point one five. Oh, okay. Yeah. So half the adult dose. Right. And then it's all going to max out based on their weight. It's going to max out at the point three. At point three. Yeah. Okay. Um. Now. This uh, first horror patient that I gave you, she had an EpiPen and she also had a inhaler. Is there any correlation between, you know, allergic reactions and asthma? That's a fantastic question. Yes, there's there's patients that actually are more more prone to very severe allergic reactions. <coughs> 
or reactions that are a little refractory to treatment. And one of the biggest patient populations to think about that in is asthmatics. Um, their lungs kind of at baseline are constantly reacting to things in their environment. So they have that excess mucus production. They have the edema in the airways, um, sometimes the narrowed airways just at baseline because of their asthma. And then you add in an allergen on top of that. And if that worsens that airway edema or the mucus production um, or the respiratory consequences, they're going to have a lot more severe um, reaction. Okay. And, you know, asthma and COPD are also pretty similar, right? So we had a whole COPD podcast, but for a refresher, what's going to be, you know, our, our start off treatment on this asthma patient? Yeah. Okay. So if we're moving to asthma aside from, uh, anaphylaxis, um, asthma airways are very similar to COPD airways in the fact that they're both, um, there's obstruction in those airways, whether it's due to edema or mucus or fibrosis or airway destruction. Somehow air is having trouble getting in and getting out. So you'll see the same things in both patient population. You'll see them working hard to breathe. You'll see their entitle be higher. You'll see them using accessory muscles. You'll see an increased respiratory rate. Um, all of that work and effort is going to moving air across, across the airways. Okay. And if the patient, you know, do their inhalers usually work pretty good for them if they have them available? Inhalers um, should work well. That's why it's the same kind of process. So we give the duonebs, um We use um, CPAP in asthma patients as well. It's, again, that obstruction that we're trying to give that positive pressure to open those airways. Um, epi is something we move to a little bit faster in asthmatics than we do in COPDers because it's a, that's where the nuances and the reaction come in. Um, but Can you describe maybe a asthmatic patient that might need epi? Um, again, I, I kind of reserve the epi in my asthmatics as, as kind of a last-ditch throw-in-the-kitchen-sink kind of effort before they go into respiratory arrest. My first moves with asthmatics are always much like COPD would be a CPAP first, then a duoneb, then the dex. It's basically the same process. Um, MAG. All of that in order to get air in and out and relax, use every modality I have to open those airways. So the albuterol and the hypertropium is going to act on the different receptors to do the bronchodilation. The dex is going to decrease the inflammatory response and stop that cascade of edema. And then the mag is going to work on the smooth muscle to relax it. And then after I've given all that a minute to work, then I'll think about epi. Okay. Uh, a couple of things I wanted to bring up. I, I think it's just, you know, as you're listening, the more times you hear something, the better. So albuterol, again, for an adult, we're going to give uh, five milligrams albuterol. The ipotropium is going to be 0.5 milligrams. Our dex dose is going to be um, 10 milligrams and it's IV. You give it over two minutes or you can avoid all that as you like to bring up and you just give that orally. Right. So you just draw it up in a syringe and take your needle off and yeah. squirt it in there. Is that yeah. how you do it? Yep. Okay. And then your mag dose for these patients is going to be? Uh, two grams over 10 minutes. Two grams over 10 minutes. Okay. Um, and I would like to also ask you about more on the dexamethasone. So how quick is that going to act? And uh, maybe 
a little bit more specifics. Is that something we're going to be able to see working on the patients by the time they get to the ER? Um, probably not by the time you drop them off at the ER, but I would expect them to look a lot better in the ER because of it. It takes anywhere from, depending on the patient's metabolism, anywhere from 10 to 30 minutes is what the textbooks will tell you. Um, and then those effects from that drug can last up to 72 hours. So really what you're doing for that patient is helping improve them over the next like three days. Okay. So, all right, let's have an, a, an example. Um, I don't know, 28 year old, uh, female patient. She was running outside and then she just started having a pretty bad asthma attack and you have to respond to that patient and, um, you know, breathing like 40 times a minute, the inhaler is not working and you get her on a O2 sat. She's down in the eighties, like the low eighties again, um, just struggling pretty bad. What are you going to want to do on her? Um, this is another one of those kind of difficult situations to describe, but I'm going to base a lot of it on how she looks. Um, how hard is she working? How tired is she? My question in my mind that I'm thinking of is, uh, am I going to move to CPAP right away or am I going to give her a chance to just do a duonub and see if that makes her better? This is a patient I might just start with a duonub first and give that a chance to work. But if it's pretty clear pretty soon that it's not, I'll move to CPAP. Okay. Um, all right. So j wrapping up, I guess, on the topic of anaphylaxis and asthma, do you have any thing that we might have missed on these two? Um, not that I can think of. I think the biggest take-home point is don't be afraid of epinephrine and anaphylaxis. Once you can define that there's two systems involved, don't be afraid to give it. Um, okay. Um, one of the things, if we are riding in with the ambulance and you show up to the hospital and they do something within a few minutes of you arriving. I always take that as that's something that EMS probably should have done. How do you feel about that? Um, that's probably a good, um, a good kind of way to look at it or think about it. If it's something that's in your scope and you had the ability to do, um, it might be a good learning point. So to if we even brought bring in, say we brought in a allergic reaction that we didn't feel needed epi and we show up to the hospital and they give epi learning point right absolutely or we show up with a asthma patient we did a duoneb we didn't do cpap they get a, the patient on cpap right when you get into the er they gave mag uh, things that we didn't do yeah those are that, that actually is a really good point and you might if there's time to bring it up with um the physician at the hospital like hey what what triggered you? What did you see in this patient that I missed? And it's a good time to, to ask or maybe clarify to understand what they were thinking in their treatment. Yeah, that's, that's my way to learn. You know, if I, whether it's a trauma patient, whatever it is that we're bringing into the ER, if you know, even something as simple as exposing the patient, you know, this has happened a couple times, but now after I learned from it, I'm like, I'm going to the trauma room and they're going to expose the patient right away. Like that's, I should already do that. Yeah. You know, so yeah, just learning fantastic. if you show up to the ER and they're doing something immediately, like just take that as they might not tell you you messed up, but you probably messed up. So try to learn from it and improve on it in the future. If there's yeah. something that they see, I've also been at the other end. We had a really good AAS medic that was real aggressive with the epi and a uh, asthma call. And we showed up and she was like, yeah, we did uh, 0.3 
Epi IM. We did a duoneb. She was satin in the 70s. Now she's satin 98%. And I'm like, oh, sweet. Good job. Yeah. You know, and we had uh, given decks already. So, yeah, you basically did everything the hospital was going to do. Cool. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I think that's a good uh, maybe closing point of just seeing the end outcome or even with AAS, you know, like if, if you're there at fire and AAS shows up and they do a immediate, they give something like pretty quickly after they show up, like that's probably something that we should be doing prior to them getting right. there. So. Excellent point. Yeah. Excellent point. All right. Well, All right. these have been good so far. So yeah. we've got uh, we've got the asthma covered. We got COPD covered. We went through anaphylaxis in this one. Um, thanks again, Doc, and I Thanks, look forward Andrew. to the next episode. Me too. Thank you.